0: Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good evening, church. That was just a mic check. Let's do it again. Good evening, church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jabu already said it, but it really is a a joy and a blessing to see so many faces coming back. For those who go away, you don't know it, but the evening services in December and January are very (laughs) scantily filled. You may open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That wonderful chapter on the love of God, on love. I thought I would start with a confession. If there's anyone keeping count, this is part 32, episode 32 of our series in 1 Corinthians. Now, ever since I heard, it was near the beginning of last year, ever since I heard we were going to be doing this series, I confess I had my eye on this chapter. All of God's word, of course, all of God's word is useful unto us, but we cannot deny the special appeal that this chapter has. As one commentator put it, it is a glorious hymn in honor of all Christian love, in which Paul rises on the wings of inspiration to the most sundered heights of Christian eloquence. So when the preaching roster came out and when I looked at the progression of 1 Corinthians and I did the math, I breathed a sigh of relief when head coverings and spiritual gifts passed me by, but I was glad that I got this chapter. I pray, I pray I do it justice. Such is the unique appeal of this chapter, even the world, even the world has bought into it. This is considered in the same light as eloquent poetry. This chapter could go right up there with Shakespeare's sonnet 116 on a fridge magnet. My favorite series, The Office, it appeals to my peculiar sense of humor. But like all series these days, it holds no spiritual significance. It portrays worldly themes, worldly agendas. Even in this series that has zero regard for the Bible or the God of the Bible, when it comes to two of the main characters getting married, they read this chapter. So according to even the world, this chapter means something. These these words, they mean something to the world. But what do they mean? What do they mean to us, to us Christians? Let us read this chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease; As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Lord, I pray to you in in desperation, asking that this exercise wouldn't be futile. Asking that your presence would be among us. Asking that your word would convict and encourage and change us. Asking knowing that even as I read this, Lord, even as I preach this, even I too am, I, am accountable to it. If I be found to be preaching in the absence of love, this is worth nothing. So, Lord, I pray. I pray, be among us. Use me unto your glory, I pray, Lord. Amen. My first point, coming from the first three verses, warnings, warnings about the absence of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This section on love is clearly not spontaneous inspiration. Paul follows the thoughts of the previous section that was covered last week by Jabu. There Paul addressed some of the different gifts of the Spirit. Some of the different ambitions that the members of the church had to have these certain gifts some of their opinions that some gifts might be worth more than others. He concluded that section with verse 31 of chapter 12, earnestly desire the gifts, but I, I will show you a more excellent way. And in this, chapter, in this chapter, we learn what this more excellent way is. It is love. He introduces this concept of love before even Defining it, he introduces it by telling us of its importance set against these gifts that these Corinthians so earnestly desired. <clears throat> Note it is addressed to the church against the backdrop of gifts of the spirit. This is not aimed at the world. This is not aimed at some corporate company that company that doesn't treat its employees well. This is not aimed at some rich person who exists in their own universe and thinks giving money to charity means something. This is not aimed at the general culture of the day that squeezes and pressures us with no regard for the individual. This isn't even aimed at the heights of romance and love. No, Paul aims this directly at the church, directly at how they were doing church, directly at why they were doing church. The church is the focus. We can lament our terrible culture elsewhere, but when Paul points the finger here, it is directly at the church. Note also, though Paul is undoubtedly addressing the church, notice Paul starts by speaking in the first person. If I... If I, if I, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. I am a clanging cymbal. I am nothing. I gain nothing. Not even Paul the apostle was above these things. As the Spirit laid these words on his mind, as he penned this letter on Paul's mind, I would imagine were the times where he acted outside of love. The great apostle, he knew something about knowledge, He knew something about faith. He knew something about sacrifice and pain and suffering. I think he knew something about love too. Without love, even the great apostle would be found wanting. Follow me as I follow Christ, he says earlier in this letter. I see those words echoed here. The more excellent way that he wants the Corinthians to to take and to live by, he too was equally accountable to it. He, too, had to live his life by it. These gifts, these gifts, desire them. Desire them earnestly, if you will, but know this. Ineffectual, vain, meaningless, fruitless, futile, in the absence of love, in the absence of love, we might consider Excuse me, in the absence of love, what we might consider to be a great gift of the Spirit, what we might consider to be a great show of the supernatural, a great show of the power of God according to us, this ability to talk in the so called tongues of men and angels, in the absence of love, that gift is brought crashing down, and at best, at best, it is an irritation like that mosquito that flies past your ear in the middle of the night. (laughs) This noise in your ear, it means nothing. It benefits you nothing. It is a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If you consider yourself a prophet, you think you can see stuff in the future. You think you have some sort of superior knowledge of what God is up to. That funny book in the Revelation, you know everything that's going on in there. You understand all the symbology and analogies and etc. You know how the world is going to end. That's wonderful. It's good to know your Bible. But know this all your prophetic powers, all your knowledge of God and theology and Arminianism and Calvin and Luther and the Pope himself, if you want, that is wonderful. But without love, nothing. It is possible, says Paul, it is possible to get the outward show of Christianity right, sacrificing all things, even unto death, even being burned alive for it. And yet on an individual level you are wasting your time because you are driven not by love. You are driven but by, by your own ambition. Because as people as people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Love is not just the package that Christianity comes in. It's not just the wrapping paper. It's not just the cardboard box. And it's not the skin that gives Christianity an out, a nice outward appearance. It is the very heart of Christianity. Outside of this little thing that we call love, Paul says all Christian life and action becomes empty and hollow. Again, I point back to Paul speaking in the first person. He starts with the I, applicable to the whole church, but this church should start with the I. Before you go running off, deciding that the guy who preached didn't preach with love, the guy who played the piano didn't play it with love, person who read the Bible, didn't read it with love, the coffee you get afterwards, it wasn't made with love because it clearly doesn't taste that nice, before you do any of those things, the coffee is wonderful, by the way, before you do any of those things, start with the I. It is fitting that even today as we read it, it is a personal thing. I am nothing. That's the challenge. Without love, I am vain. I am a noisy irritation. If this is true, (laughs) I say if, we know it is true, it's the word of God. But if we actually took this to be true and put effort into applying this, how much of our lives become void of meaning? All the little sacrifices we think we make for Jesus, all our wonderful talents and gifts that we think are God's gift to humanity, All the loftiness of our wonderful theology without love goes up in smoke. Surely it's hyperbole, one might say. Surely Paul is just exaggerating to prove a point. Maybe, Maybe we should have stuck with Shakespeare. Suddenly the stuff that Paul is saying about love, it isn't as sweet as we usually make it out to be. Paul moves on. We have looked at the first three verses, the absence of love. But Paul moves on. He gives us the nature of love, the essence of love, verse 4 to 7. Paul describes here what love actually looks like. Outside of love, every action in this Christian life, it is meaningless. But what is love itself? Not just in lofty, abstract romanticism where love is Subjective, and we all get to decide what it means. No, no. These are not, these are not even descriptive words that Paul uses, these are verbs, these are doing words. The love talked about here, it's not the warm feeling you might feel deep inside of you. Rather, it is the expression, the outward ex- expression of an inward, inward character. Without this outward expression, we assume there is no inward character. We cannot know that it exists. We only know it exists when it is expressed outwardly. (laughs) For out of the abundance of the heart, so the mouth speaks. Paul is not so much describing love here as he is telling them how it is done. Action. Paul does so knowing full well the issues that this Corinthian church has. Love is described in other ways, also in Scripture. But here Paul uses these words to address the lack of love in this, Christian, in this Corinthian church. The lack of love, the lack of action. You Corinthians, with your fra- factions and your quarrels, with your enmity and your strife, remember, love is patient and it is kind. I find it appropriate that these two go hand in hand. Patience goes with kindness. We ought not pat ourselves on the back just because we didn't blow up. Just because we didn't blow up in anger or have a fit of impatience. The goal is not the containment of anger. It is that we exercise patience with kindness. When we are provoked, where the world would usually lose its temper... Not only should we not lose our temper, we respond in kindness. Has God not shown patience and kindness to you in your life? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You Corinthians who desire spiritual gifts and positions in the church— You have this ambition, that's nice. But remember, love does not envy your boast. The eye ought not glory in itself for being an eye and look down at the hand and say, I have no need of you, you are beneath me. Likewise, it would be unwise for the foot to look up to the head with envy, thinking less of itself, being discontent in its lowliness. If you would boast, boast in Christ. But ours is not to look up and down with boasting. It's not to look down with boasting nor up with envy. We are one body. You Corinthians, remember love is not arrogant, nor nor is it rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not me, me, me. It isn't trying to win every conversation and win every argument. Love does not consider oneself to be the center of the universe. Love is okay. Love is okay with being second. Love considers the interests of others above its own. Not just your wife, not just your husband, not just your children. This is addressed to the church. Remember those factions from chapter 1? The Paul faction, the Apollos faction, the Peter faction, the Christ faction. You strut about in arrogance, thinking you are better than the rest. Love is not arrogance, nor is it rude. You Corinthians, you who desecrate the Lord's Supper, who partake with greed and leave nothing for those coming after you, you don't even have basic table manners. Love is not rude. It is not irritable, nor is it resentful. You Corinthians, always on edge, always waiting for a reason to spark conflict, to be irritated, always looking for a reason to complain, always assuming the worst, always keeping records of all the wrongs people have done to you. Will it never end? Have you ever considered forgiving as you have been forgiven? Have you forgotten the promise of God that he would be merciful to your iniquities and remember your sins no more? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. You Corinthians, earlier in this letter, there was a case of a man caught in sexual immorality. How did the Corinthians respond? Did they address this man's sin? No. No. Their response was arrogance. With pride, they beat their chests and said, look at us. Look at how tolerant we are. Maybe they even called it love. Look at how loving we are. So before before these Corinthians get carried away with this concept of love, Paul reminds them, love does not, love cannot, love will not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love is not the garden where you proudly plant all your sin and say, look at me, I am so loved. Love rejoices in the truth. Love disciplines. Love prunes. It weeds out the sin. Rejoicing in the truth that it is for freedom that you have been set free. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are now slaves to righteousness. This is the work of God in our lives. And this is what love does to the church as we consider, as we consider how to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. God hates sin. We ought to hate it too. Sin is terrible, it is an abomination. It is all that is wrong in this world, and indeed, it is all that is wrong even within our own hearts. We cannot rejoice in it. When we confess our sins to one another, when our love for one another expresses sin and brings it to the light, it is not for the sake of a soft pat on the back that we might feel better, better about ourselves. It is for the sake of the truth that we might be healed, as James says. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. All things? All things, Paul. All things. (laughs) Are there nuances to situations? Yes, of course there are. As we exercise, as we exercise love, it might appear different from situation to situation, from conflict to conflict, from from relationship to relationship, from moments of discipline to moments of restoration. But here's the point. Here's the point. It is always there. Always. It is always our goal. It is always at the heart of the Christian's life. And it is always at the heart of the church's life. Love in action. And this love, it should know no end. That's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. And as they read and heard these words, I would imagine... Their own deficiencies would have jumped out at them. The times that they had failed in acting out the love of God. Do you think love, excuse me, do you think man has changed much since this was written? Do you think you need to hear about love tonight? Have Christians changed? Has the church changed? Are you slow? to lose your patience? Do you respond to adversity with kindness? Do you have your moments of envy and boasting? Are you envious? Do you wish to be perceived like the significance of another? Are you proud? Are you arrogant? Are you puffed up, thinking more of yourself than you really are? Does it irk you when you don't get your own way? Does it irk you when someone else's opinion is counted as more important than your own? Does it hurt? Do you find yourself rejoicing in the downfall and sin of others because it makes you feel better about how wonderful a Christian you are? Or do you rejoice? Do you rejoice in the truth? The love that you have for God the love that you have for his people, his bride, his church, have you found its end yet? Now, if you have known me for longer than five minutes, you know how far I fall short of this love. You know how far I fall short of what it's supposed to look like in action. Most certainly as a Christian, I have not found the ends of God's love but I can tell you this, often in my sinfulness, I find the end of my love for him and for his church. Now maybe, maybe there's some goodies here tonight. Maybe you're better men and woman than I. And that, that's not even a maybe. You're definitely better men and women than I. But I suspect, I suspect that even you, even you, if you looked in the mirror and you looked yourself in the eye, And if you are honest with yourself, I suspect you too would find yourself falling short. I do not know how to read this and not be challenged. This has been a torturous week. Every conversation, every action, I've had to ask myself, Was this done with love? This better way that Paul describes here Such is his description of it that it almost seems impossible. It feels beyond us. Maybe that's part of the point. As well as being a challenge, this is also God's love for us that is described here. That is the standard. That is the standard. This love doesn't come naturally to us. This love is not born in the evil hearts of mankind that are deceitful beyond all things, that are desperately sick and wicked. Who can know them? There is no love born in the hearts of sinful, evil men that will ever compare to the love of God, the love of Christ. This is the love that conquers all. And it is only this love that overcomes all. It is only this love that can endure all, And this is the love that endured the cross for our sake. And now, even now, our best theologies have not found the end of this love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep This challenge to love, it was not written to romanticize the life of an unbeliever. They might use it that way, that's fine. But this love is beyond the reach of the unbeliever. We cannot expect the character of God, the love of God, to shine through that which is unregenerate. A quote from C.S. Lewis, it is easy to acknowledge but almost impossible to realize for long that we are mirrors. We are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. We cannot imitate what we do not know. We cannot follow the example of one who we do not believe in. We cannot reflect the character and love that is entirely the work of God if we have never tasted this love for ourselves. Our ability to love, it is in its entirety dependent on God loving us first. A second quote from C.S. Lewis as I close off the section, reflecting on the Christian's experience of the love of God, he says, No sooner, no sooner do we believe that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so. Not because he is love, but because we are so intrinsically lovable. There is no shortage of commands in scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. Love one another, Jesus said, just as I have loved you so too love one another. If you, if you, even as a Christian, if you, in the evil of your own heart and mind, build yourself up into some gifted superhero that God was compelled to save for the sake of his kingdom, you've already missed the point. Your salvation, it was an act of mercy and grace and God's love And God's love for you, God's love for you, it has never limped along based on what you think you can offer God. And it never will. God's saving love for the Christian is Him loving the unlovable. That is the point I'm making. Because the command says, love as I have loved you. Because as Christians, we understand this love to be God's love. Because there's this link between how he loves us and how we ought to love others. Because this link exists, if we make little of God's love, then we are deceiving ourselves into thinking the command to love others is small and easy. And once we have diluted God's love, once we have diluted his love, then this chapter it simply becomes poetry. Simply becomes hyperbole, simply becomes abstract thought. And then this call to action, (laughs) this call to action becomes fruitless because we have made God's love small. Because we think He loves us because we are so lovable. And so we decide when we love others, we will only love the lovable. But if we see God's love for what it is, loving the unlovable, It is not a mushy love based on feeling. It is not a conditional love based on merit. It is the love of the eternal God for his people, an expression of his divine character. And that is what we are called to. That is how we ought to love each other in the church. Do you struggle? Do you struggle like I struggle to live by the love described in this chapter? I'm suggesting that we struggle And we fail because we fail to comprehend the love of Christ. We ought to know the love of God more. We ought to obsess over it. We ought to feel a holy dissatisfaction every time we are poked and impatience comes out of us. We ought to feel a holy dissatisfaction every time we give in to malice and rudeness and envy and greed and arrogance. The more we know the love of God for us, the better we will love others. My last point, the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. That's found in verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will surely pass away. As for tongues, they will surely cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in parts and we prophesy in part, but when the, perfect com- when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child excuse me, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in parts, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is supreme. It is distinguished and it is distinct from the gifts and the knowledge, and even from the faith and hope. For these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What makes love so distinct? Ask yourself. What makes it so different? What makes it so great? These gifts, these gifts, they express some of God's power, perhaps. They reach for knowing God, and there is value in knowing God. He is infinite and unknowable, but there's value in trying. Please read your Bibles and try and know God. But love, love is distinct from that. Love never ends. Love is not power. Love is not knowledge. Those will be irrelevant soon enough. Love, and I've already said it, love is an eternal, love is an expression of the divine, eternal character of God. This is the very heart of God. Do you think, do you think we'll still aspire to gifts and knowledge when we get to heaven? When we see God face to face, when we know fully, just as we have been fully known, as Paul describes it, When we hear his voice, what tongue of men or angels will still concern us when we know the voice of God himself? Do you think it will still concern us who sings better, who preaches better? When we have reached our heavenly home, what prophecy will still benefit us? long after our pitiful attempts to simulate God's power have passed away into the abyss, long after our finite attempts at knowing an infinite God have passed away from memory, long after our best songs have been sung and our best sermons preached, long after, long after, but even then, even then, when all other things have passed away, still shall we dwell in his infinite love. Still shall we marvel at it, and even when we've been there 10,000 years, still shall we marvel at it and sing of it. Love never ends. What is Paul saying here? There is no evil in desiring spiritual gifts. But chapter 14, verse one: "Desire gifts, that's fine. Desire gifts, but pursue love. See, we can obsess over gifts. They can so easily consume our hearts and minds, and we can so easily think that having a wonderful gift equals to some sort of spiritual maturity. Desire them, but pursue love. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but then I became a man, and what did manhood look like? What is Christian maturity in this life? Christian maturity in in this life it is realizing that the Christian gifts that we have or desire in this life they are means to an end. You can spend your whole life obsessing over gifts. You can spend your whole life beating yourself up thinking you are less of a Christian because you don't have as great a gift as the person next to you. Or or you can see that Christian maturity is not the quality of your gift. It is the conformity of your character to God's character. This Corinthian church had many gifts, many gifts, but very little maturity. Because the means to an end became the end, and that end became a competition, and they were found lacking in the one thing that is supposed to define us as Christians, and that is love. Let's conclude this. God is glorified. God is glorified in the salvation of souls. If you have any doubts about that, go watch Mark's series on Acts. God is glorified when churches grow. God is glorified when we use our spiritual gifts well. This emphasis on love is most certainly not saying forget about spiritual gifts. God is glorified when you sing well. God is glorified if I preach well from his word and proclaim his truth well. God is glorified when you serve well and faithfully in the church. But here's the warning. Do not think any of those things are worth anything if you do not have the character and the love of God. Because God is also glorified in this little thing, this little thing that we call love. You know that that sweet moment when child takes after their parent the recent baby boom in this church has (laughs) it's already been noted previously and it seems to me week after week sunday after sunday there's this discussion about who the baby takes after this week last week the baby had the mother's nose this week he has the father's hair and then the baby grows a little bit more and other characteristics shine through And then the baby smiles, and it has its mother's smile. But when the baby gets angry, it looks like its father. (laughs) God is glorified when his children grow up. God is glorified when his children leave behind their infancy. Remember Paul in chapter 3 of this letter. He addresses them as infants in Christ because of their jealousy, because of the strife among them. God is glorified when you grow up when you become a man, when you become a woman and you leave behind your childish ways. God is glorified when his sons and his daughters begin to look like him. God is glorified not just not just when we have his nose or his hair, but we are, when we are conformed to his very image. When we display his love, his character, God is glorified. Love just as I have loved you. So too, love one another, Jesus says. Church, Christians that make up the church, we can play church our whole lives if we want. But there is a better way. We can leave our childish ways behind us, and we can take after our Heavenly Father. We can love. We can love not just some wild, erratic, fanciful romanticism of this word love, but we can love just as God has loved us. God is love. Pursue love that you might look like him. Let us pray. Lord, these words are are easier in in a sermon. But I pray that, I pray for myself more than anyone, Lord. May your words, the word of God, may your spirit may change me. May I find some sort of Christian maturity in this life as I am conformed to your image. Not because I am great at anything, but because God loved me first with an eternal love. Conform me, Lord, change me. Rid me of my sinful ways, that I might look at you, look like you. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Help Baptist me, Lord, Church at Pray. www.central.org.za. <laughs>